Welcome to the Atlantic Council Events Podcast. The Atlantic Council serves the global community by bringing together world leaders, foreign policy experts, and great thinkers to shape today's policy choices and navigate the global challenges of the 21st century. In the following program, panelists Chris Backemeyer, David Mortlock, and Barbara Slavin discuss the outlook for investment in Iran, the ongoing status of existing sanctions, and the broader context of U.S. policy towards Iran. The event took place on September 9, 2016. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Dick Morningstar, chairman of the Global Energy Center uh, here at the Atlantic Council. And on behalf of the Global Energy Center and our South Asia Center, uh, I'm pleased to welcome you all here today uh, for what should be a great discussion on the current status of U.S. and international sanctions on the Iranian economy. Uh, including, including the Iranian energy sector. The fact that we have such a, a such a good crowd, uh, it really does indicate the importance uh, of this subject. And there's no doubt that the implementation of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action has materially impacted the Iranian economy. But the question is how much? And we just hear so many conflicting questions and comments about uh, what the real situation is that uh, I hope today uh, that we'll begin to get uh, some uh, clarification. And for business leaders uh, and policymakers alike, it's critical to understand uh, the investment and political climate. And uh, again, uh, we, I know that the experts that we have today will help uh, to develop a collective understanding of these issues. So let me introduce uh, the panel and our moderator. Uh, we have what I would call, who I would call, at least at one time, <coughs> the sanctions twins uh, at the uh, uh, at the State Department, um, at, because when I was when I was there, they were the two people who were so actively uh, involved. Uh, we have Chris Backemeyer, who now is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for for Iranian Affairs uh, in the State Department's Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs, and prior to that, Chris was the Deputy Coordinator uh, for Sanctions Policy. Policy uh, and uh, the lead sanctions negotiator for the United States in the P5 plus one negotiations with Iran. Uh, David uh, Mortlock um, is now a valued non-resident senior fellow uh, with the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center. He's a partner at the law firm of Wilkie, Farr & Gallagher, where he focuses on sanctions, export controls, and other international trade issues. And he previ previously served in a number of roles um, involving sanctions policy in the White House and the State Department. Uh, he was in the legal advisor's office at the State Department, right, uh, where <clears throat> he worked closely with Chris on a number of these issues. And we also have a person I'm sure most of you know if you've been to uh, events here, Barbara Slavin, uh, who's the acting director of the Future of Iran Initiative at the Atlantic Council and is the Washington correspondence uh, for almonitor.com, uh, which is a website devoted to news from and about the Middle East. And Barbara really has been the driving force between the, uh, uh, behind the Council's Iran work, and we're lucky to have her with us today. And also moderating the event today is one of our old friends, well, she's not old, but she's an old friend, um, and we're ext we're extremely excited 
<coughs> to again have Yagana Torbati, um, a defense and sanctions policy reporter for Reuters. Uh, Yagana brings uh, deep expertise on Iran to today's discussion and has covered the politics, economy, foreign policy, and nuclear program for Reuters uh, from 2011 to 2013. Yeah. And so again, uh, we're pleased together uh, to have such a great group of experts and to have such a really impressive turnout. Uh, I have Just one final housekeeping note. I would encourage you all to join the conversation on Twitter at AC Energy and using hashtag AC Energy. And with that, to Yagana. Thank you. Uh, all right. Is this working? Yes. Um, so thank you all so much uh, for joining us. Thank you, Ambassador Morningstar, for the introduction. And thank you to the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center and the South Asia Center for hosting us today for this panel. Uh, most Western sanctions on Iran were lifted about eight months ago, um, as simultaneous with the official implementation of the nuclear deal. Iran has gained access to tens of billions of dollars of its frozen assets abroad. It has signed dozens of agreements with international businesses worth tens of, billion tens of billions of dollars for airplanes, factories, plants, and other industry and infrastructure. Their oil exports are now close to pre-sanction levels of around two and a half million barrels per day. Uh, European airlines are resuming their direct flights to Iran, and the World Bank estimates that Iran's economy will grow by over 4% in 2016, which is in sharp contrast to its trajectory before the nuclear deal. But yet, um, not a single major European bank has established meaningful links with Iran's financial sector, which means that those billions of dollars in deals can't actually go through yet. Non-US firms say that they find it very difficult to navigate the US sanctions that do remain on Iran, the Iranian Supreme Leader has said that the nuclear agreement was an experience that showed the futility of negotiating with the United States. And it seems like every month brings us news of uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps arresting another Iranian dual national, which in addition to the impact on those individuals and their families certainly makes operating in Iran a special risk for international businesses. So as we approach the one-year mark of the nuclear deal's implementation and the lifting of sanctions, how should we think about the state of affairs that I just outlined? Are these the expected hiccups that go along with implementing an extraordinarily complex and intricate multilateral agreement? Or are they the harbinger of more fundamental problems that may scuttle the deal down the road? I won't repeat our guests' um, bios, uh, as Ambassador Morningstar um, already uh, went through those for you. But I do want to note that um, this is Chris's first, I understand, first public on the record event as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Iran. So we're very glad to have him here. David is certainly someone that I call when I want to get smart on sanctions. So we're uh, also happy to have him here. And Barbara is a frequent traveler to Iran and has written a great deal on Iran. So she will offer some uh, special insights into the workings of that country. So Chris, I'd like to start with you. Um, can you lay out for us right now how you view the overall relationship between Iran and the United States taking into account both the nuclear deal specifically, but then also um, in their broader arenas of tension. Sure, I'm happy to. I think, um, I think you really laid it out well in the questions that you posed at the end. Are these you know, expected hiccups for a multilateral deal? Or are they, they the harbinger of bad things to come? I think it's the former. Um, it's easy, I think, to have gotten wrapped up as we got through the JCPOA and, and, and have an expectation that you know, the JCPOA was going to solve all of our problems. It is going to solve all of Iran's problems, both economically and, and globally. Um, it certainly wasn't our expectation, uh, those of us who negotiated the deal, that that was going to be the case. We knew that the nuclear deal was robust, 
that it addressed a critical threat to the United States. We knew that it uh, resulted in, in pretty significant sanctions relief that apply to, uh, you know, largely to non-U.S. countries and, or in non-U.S. companies. And it was a major step forward in our relationship. It was a major step towards solving those problems. Um, and, you know, we got a lot of criticism at the time, uh, allegations that, oh, you know, you, you, can't, you can't trust the Iranians and, and they still are doing all these other bad things. And we acknowledged that. We said, uh, you know, this isn't intended to solve all of our other problems. This isn't intended to solve Iran's support for terrorism. This isn't, isn't intended to solve uh, their abuses of human rights. And as it turns out, it has not solved uh, those particular issues. That was not our intent. Um, the way we look at it is, every single one of those things would have been much, much worse had Iran had a nuclear weapon, regardless of human rights or terrorism or, or an advancing ballistic missile program, harassment of, of US citizens in Iran. All those things would be much worse if Iran uh, was equipped with that. So we still feel that the JCPOA did exactly what it was supposed to do. It got Iran, uh, it took Iran's breakout timeline from 30 days or from, from less than 90 days to over a year. Uh, it took its enriched uranium stockpile from uh, uh, down by 98%. Uh, and it Im implemented transparency measures that were really uh, uh, unprecedented in, in, in this non-proliferation context. So, and what we've seen on the nuclear side, so far Iran has lived up to its commitments, and that's a good thing. On our side, the U.S. has lived up to its commitments as well. We have, uh, we have lifted all the sanctions that we said we would, it's, it's, as you read the press, it can often get uh, a little bit confusing because there's, there's sometimes allegations that we promised Iran a certain GDP growth rate or we promised Iran a certain number of banks. The United States nor any country has the ability to promise a certain amount of economic relief to another country. That's obviously just not something that is possible. We promised to relieve a certain amount of, or a, a discrete number of sanctions, and we did that. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, though, that that, are, that means our job is done. We realize that the health of the deal uh, revolves on all parties, all of the P5 plus one, being satisfied with it. And so we spent a great deal of time uh, trying to make sure that both the Iranians and our European partners and those that weren't partners in the P5 plus one but that are on the global stage know that the United States is not standing in the way of, of business opportunities uh, and is not intending to use our, our existing sanctions to try to to uh, duplicate any of those that, uh, that were in place in the JCPOA. Now, you made, some you made some really good points about the progress we've seen so far. Um, it's worth pointing those things out. Iran's oil sales are up over 2 million barrels a day. Uh, you never would have thought that would have happened just a year ago. That's pretty impressive. Uh, oil revenues were something like $2.85 billion, I think, in May, uh, compared to $1.1 billion last year on average. Uh, those are some pretty big things. According to Ron's own statements, they have over 400 correspondent accounts set up with international banks in both Europe and Asia. And so it's worth putting into context when uh, the IMS projecting 4% growth, something we'd really like in this country, and that's not too bad. So 4% um, growth is pretty good. And so when you look at those things all in that context, you look at Iran complying with its commitments on the nuclear side, I feel very comfortable saying that the JCPOA is working uh, as we intended it to. Um, now, on the broader relationship, which is a good, a very good segue, you're right. We continue to have uh, major concerns with things that, that Iran does outside uh, the sphere of the nuclear program. Iran's support for the Assad regime in Syria, in particular. It's a, su it's a support for the Houthis in Yemen. Um, you know, it's continued support for terrorism in the region, including you know, uh, uh, militant groups like militant terrorist groups like Hezbollah. Um, these are things that we continue to counter. We have 
That's exactly why we have these other sanctions in place that we didn't relieve as part of the nuclear deal. Um, that's exactly why we weren't comfortable re relieving them at the time. And so uh, we've got a lot, we have a lot of work to do before we ever solve all those problems. And they're very big items on the agenda. For now, though, we've, we feel very comfortable in what we have accomplished on, on the JCPOA context. Um, and then just lastly, and I'll, and I'll be quiet, um, you mentioned the Supreme Leader's comments. You know, I don't, it's not for me to, to comment on everything he says, but I can tell you that over the course of our negotiations, um, you know, from the very beginning, Supreme Leader's made a variety of comments, uh, often negative about the negotiations. At the end of the day, uh, we're continuing to go down the track that we've laid out, which is, you know, implementing the JCPOA and continuing to counter uh, the other behaviors that we don't like in Iran. Um, and we'll, we'll just have to see how the politics plays out there. Um, turns out we have a pretty vigorous political debate in our own country as well. And, um, you know, a lot of times we have to let that all happen while we're trying to uh, achieve our own policy goals kind of underneath the surface. And just to kind of follow up on that, you know, I, I recognize there's a kind of a mirrored debate on both sides, but you don't have in, in the United States the head of state, you know, casting doubt on the nuclear deal, um, saying that Iran was unfair or is like li not living up to its commitments. You do have that situation in Iran. Can you talk maybe a little bit more in depth about what's the reaction within the State Department, within your team, when you hear the, the Supreme Leader saying these things? Does it make you want to you know, do more to um, alleviate the pressure on Iran, to encourage businesses to go back? Do you all sort of, uh, you know, just ignore it? What, what's, the, what's the reaction? Um, well, it's not, well, certainly it's not a situation where they make a comment like that and we feel like we have to do more than we did in the JCPOA. I mean, we, we agreed to a certain context. What we're committed to doing is making sure that what we did in the JCPOA is real, is understood by the international community, that uh, that, it, that, that, that those things are implemented the way everyone expected them to, and we put a lot of effort into doing that, uh, sending uh, teams all over the world to explain these things to companies. We do a lot of uh, engagement both here in, in Washington and the United States, as well as overseas. Uh, and so that's, that's an ongoing effort, and I think we would be doing that regardless of, of, of what senior officials in Iran uh, would say. Comparing, you know, that situation to, to our president, look, we've got very different political systems. You know, we have a democracy. We have, we have a, uh, a Congress that, that is uh, uh, finely tuned to everything that, that, that we say on this. And so we are, uh, we do not try to use international statements to try to accomplish, you know, uh, uh, you know things beyond what we've already done in writing. And so we're, I, I just don't know that those are the, the two right people to compare. Okay. And uh, you mentioned some of the outreach the U.S. government has done. I just want to cite some figures. Um, this is according to Treasury, Treasury Acting Undersecretary Adam Zubin, who said that um, in 2015, OFAC, which is the office that implements sanctions, which we'll um, very much get into, um, fielded over 85,000 calls on its hotline from banks, legal counsel, and individuals with sanctions questions. And they do this all with a staff of fewer than 200 people. So uh, one of those uh, legal counsel <laughs> members who probably calls it <coughs> quite a bit is David. So I'd like to turn yeah. to you, David. Um, can you start off by giving us kind of a broad overview of where we actually do stand with the return of international business um, to Iran? There was a lot of excitement in the run-up um, to the nuclear deal and in the initial months afterward. Um, what are some of the obstacles that the private sector has had? Sure, absolutely. Um, well, I think, first of all, in a broad sense, there's no question that the implementation of the deal has been successful in opening new business opportunities in Iran. Um, I think the, 
the clearest numbers that Chris cited with respect to oil exports uh, are just the beginning. Um, we're seeing uh, a lot of activity in the energy sector. You can see it, in fact, through the insurance industry as a great window uh, because you're seeing uh, insurance exposure um, for shipping to and from Iran. You're seeing uh, exposure for activities in the energy sector, uh, in the oil and gas uh, services. Um, you're also seeing uh, a lot of exporters uh, looking to Iran. Um, uh, Iran is obviously a very uh, attractive market. It's um, uh, it sort of consumer focused. Uh, and there's, a, uh, there's uh, in terms of uh, compliance, exporting uh, goods is uh, one of the most relatively simple areas uh, you can get into. Uh, we're even seeing the beginning of looking at equity investments. Um, there's obviously a long way to go on that, but um, actual foreign direct investment in Iran um, is under discussion uh, and specific projects uh, are being looked at by, by companies. Nonetheless, I mean, there's obviously still significant challenges, uh, right? Iran is, is not Europe. Um, and I think uh, first and foremost, uh, obviously, in my day-to-day -day is seeing the, the challenges from sanctions. Now, those challenges, though, uh, with respect to sanctions, uh, I, I, would, I would say they're challenges, but they're not obstacles, right? The, uh, the sanctions regime that um, the, the JCPOA laid out uh, that OFAC is implementing um, is manageable. It is manageable, and I think uh, um, we are seeing companies take on responsibility for making sure that they are uh, in compliance with U.S. sanctions, whether it's uh, non-U.S. companies, whether it's U.S. parents uh, of non-U.S. companies, whether it's U.S. companies that are simply worried uh, about uh, their goods or services ending up in Iran um, because of others doing business there. Uh, I think we're seeing, um, we're seeing companies tackle those challenges and nonetheless uh, um, think about entering and actually entering the Iranian market. Um, there's no question that, that some of those issues can get difficult. Uh, the role of US persons, obviously, uh, is still uh, something that companies need to address, screening for SDNs uh, in Iran uh, and ensuring that uh, you're not engaged with, um, uh, with individuals and entities on the uh, SDN list or the European sanctions list uh, is, um, it, is it's, again, it's, it's manageable. It's something that companies simply need to set up a process and a set of procedures to do uh, to ensure that they're not um, crossing any lines and getting into trouble on the back end. Um, I think one other challenge is, is the reputational risk. There's still some concern about criticism from Congress, uh, from certain members of Congress, from uh, NGOs uh, that still have concerns about the nuclear deal. Um, but I think, uh, you know, is the election, um, depending on the outcome, may give people more confidence that the deal is, is here to stay. Um, and then finally, the, the, uh, I think one, the other significant challenge is, is Iran itself, uh, right, uh, is the fact that Iranians as business partners, uh, the Iranian government as a business partner um, has some unique challenges, um, is, uh, is not the most transparent uh, entity in the world. Um, is not great at providing information about the entities involved in any particular transaction, is uh, not great uh, about helping with due diligence and making that process easier on companies that are looking at the Iranian market. Uh, and I think if they were to 
if they were to do so, I think they give a lot of comfort to companies, uh, not just looking at exporting goods or services, but looking at the next level uh, equity investment uh, and financial services, which is really where we're still seeing the, uh, the hesitation and the reluctance from uh, even non-US companies. Uh, I think, you know, from, from my um, perch outside the government, uh, I can now do the very easy thing of saying what the government should do. And, of course, Chris can just snap his fingers and, and make that happen. Um, but, you know, I think, uh, uh, I think uh, as Undersecretary Zubin said, uh, yesterday I think OFAC is engaging, but there's a lot more that could be done. Um, more uh, explicit FAQs that kind of go beyond the basics and, and the most obvious uh, elements of the FAQs um, uh, in releasing um, enforcement actions, being much more explicit about uh, why uh, OFAC took that approach and why, um, uh, you know, why the, the, the legal theory behind why the entity involved was actually found to be in violation of sanctions. Um, there's no, uh, you know, lawyers engaged in, in sanctions compliance tend not to be on Westlaw. Uh, looking at, at decades and decades of, of cases and, and decisions. Uh, they tend to be going by uh, very recent uh, interpretations by OFAC, by rules of practice, um, by reading the tea leaves of what OFAC has done most recently. And with the JCPOA, there is only eight months of tea leaves out there. So um, that, uh, that can make it challenging. So I think um, um, you know, not just engagement, um, but actual public written uh, comments. Uh, if you've got the phone number and can call someone up at OFAC, it's true. They, they will get back to you. They will be helpful. Um, but that assumes you have the phone number. And uh, you know, not, not everybody does. And then from the private sector also, I think, I think the reality is you know, there are a lot of complaints in the private sector that it's too hard, it's too difficult. Uh, I'm sure Chris hears this quite often. Um, but the reality is companies, if, if, they, if they scratch the surface, um, I think they'd realize that there's a lot more that can be done. Uh, if you simply put the right policy and procedures in place, um, you can operate in Iran, you can export to Iran. Um, you just need to ask those questions of what can be done um, rather than look at um, the surface, right? You've got a, a lot of companies still citing uh, the BMP uh, case uh, as a reason not to go into Iran. A lot of companies citing you know, the other uh, enforcement actions of, of hundreds of millions of dollars for reasons not to go into Iran. Um, but as the U.S. government has said many times, you know, these were unique cases of um, uh, sophisticated, deliberate efforts to um, violate sanctions. Uh, they were not simply someone that took the time and care to put in place a compliance program, uh, a policy, and then um, happened to slip up because someone slipped through the screening uh, process, for example. Uh, and so I think if you actually scratch the surface and see that um, there are many companies operating in Iran, it can be done. If you're careful and diligent, uh, I think the private sector would uh, find that comfort that they're looking for. Um, just as a follow-up, I mean, a lot of times um, higher-level policymakers will make certain public statements. Um, but when you, when the, where the rubber hits the mo hits the road with like the the kind of lower down regulators, it's a it's a different story. So there's a, there are a couple of recent quotes that I thought were relevant. Um, Secretary Kerry said this in London. 
in May, um, when he was trying to convince European banks to go back into Iran, he said, banks in Europe are allowed to open accounts for Iran. Banks in Europe are allowed to do business. Banks in Europe can fund programs, lend money. That's absolutely open for business as long as it's not a designated entity, period, very simple. Um, when you, in your, in, your, in your interactions with OFAC or in the legal community's interactions with OFAC, do you find that reflected in their advice to you? Um, and then can you talk a little bit about, I mean, his caveat at the end is important, as long as it's not a designated entity. That includes the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which, has, which plays a huge role in Iran's economy. So what is it like actually on the implementation of you know, that sort of statement? Um, and when, when, a company, when a business actually does want to go into Iran, is it, is it that simple? What, what, what do they have to look out for? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the point, the point that Secretary Kerry is making there is fundamentally true in that if you actually look at what the sanctions require, if you actually look at what the sanctions prohibit uh, and where they draw the line, you can go into Iran and, and do business. Um, you know, it's, it's obviously not so simple. Um, if it was simple, I wouldn't have anything to do all day. Uh, but, uh, um, but the reality is it, it is, the word I would use is, is manageable, right? Um, you, you know, look, uh, avoiding SDNs in, uh, in Iran is uh, a challenge. You know, the IRGC is, is very present. Uh, the Iranians are starting to be more transparent about where the IRGC um, has its interests. Um, it's starting to be more transparent about, um, uh, you know, which entities are owned and controlled by the IRGC. Um, but if anything, that makes it, uh, you know, that doesn't make it easier. That, that just sort of uh, clears the mist away to determine uh, what's off limits. Um, but, you know, that is going to be helpful in the long run. It's going to make due diligence easier. It's going to make screening uh, easier for companies that are operating in Iran. Uh, and so, um, you know, I would, I think the, the, the crux of, of his point that it can be done uh, is correct um, so long as you're simply, uh, you know, putting the right procedures in place. All right. So, Barbara, I'd like to turn to you now. Sure. Um, can you touch a bit on the domestic scene in Iran? Um, President Rouhani seems to genuinely want engagement with the West um, and the return of Western business. How do you see the power balance between him and the Revolutionary Guards and you know the Supreme Leader playing out in this first year of the nuclear deal? First, thank you very much to uh, Dick Morningstar and everyone for inviting me to participate. Of course, these are these are the huge questions that we all need answered, and it's impossible to predict with 100% certainty how things will go. I think what's clear, and I don't know if you know, the intention behind the JCPOA was to get a nuclear deal, as, as Chris pointed out. Uh, but it has touched off a much deeper debate in Iran about what its role in the international community is going to be. Uh, the secondary sanctions have been lifted. Certain kinds of business and investment is now permitted. But Iran sees that it's not easy to roll back the uh, isolation of the past particularly five, six years when sanctions were hitting their peak. And so the Iranians now have to decide what do they have to do to convince the rest of the world that it is actually safe to do business in Iran again and that, for example, the oil companies, we haven't talked about the oil companies, but they're being asked to sign contracts that will go on for decades. Uh, for exploration. How safe is that in the context of a very volatile political environment in Iran? Um, I've always been accused of being too optimistic about Iran, and uh, uh, I don't want to fall into that trap, but I do see some very positive signs. I think there's really hard fighting going on on the part of Rouhani and his ministers 
uh, to try to establish clear rules of the road that will be acceptable to foreign businesses. Uh, we've seen, for example, that Iran has entered into extensive negotiations with the FATF, the Foreign of uh, Financial, Action Financial, Financial Action Task Force, uh, which is a watchdog group that was set up to police money laundering and uh, impose uh, restrictions on terrorism financing. Uh, the Iranians have uh, an action plan that they reached with the FATF. I believe they signed it in June. They're starting to implement it. The FATF suspended so-called countermeasures against Iran for a year uh, to give uh, Iran time. This, these are the sort of measures that basically uh, tell foreign uh, banks don't have anything to do with Iran. So Iran has gone from a, from a, uh, a, black, a, a true blacklist to a kind of blacklist light uh, when it comes to the FATF. And this has enabled Iran to open uh, bank accounts abroad. Uh, I am hearing that there is even a first-tier European bank or two that has gone back into Iran. Nobody is publicizing this yet because they're concerned about backlash from the US Congress, from shareholders, from various groups in this country that are fighting tooth and nail to prevent Iran from benefiting from the JCPOA. Um, but it is slowly picking up. So, you know, this is, this is good news. The question is, can Iran actually uh, now diminish the role of the IRGC in, in its economy? The role of these organizations that are run by IRGC people grew during sanctions, as one would expect. Uh, if Iran was cut out of legitimate business, you know, the groups that have ways of laundering money and smuggling and whatnot, these are the groups that one would expect to benefit, and indeed they did. And now the IRGC is fighting to keep its share of, of the pie, especially as that pie appears to be growing now with, uh, with the relief of these sanctions. But uh, there's some very interesting uh, articles that have been in the Iranian press. I don't know if this, these are true or not. One of them was in Kehan, which is a notoriously anti-government uh, publication. But it claimed uh, recently that um, that uh, uh, the uh, Iranian government, or that rather two major banks in Iran had decided not to do business with, um, with the uh, organization for the IRGC that does a lot of uh, construction uh, work, the Hatam al-Anbiya construction company. Um, but I think it is fair to say and, uh, you know, that, that Rouhani and company are working very, very hard on these issues. Uh, one of the main reasons is that Iran desperately needs international financing, uh, particularly for its oil and gas industry. Uh, the oil minister, Zangane, says he wants $185 billion of foreign investment by 2020. Uh, he's also talked about the fact that in all these shared gas and oil fields, uh, other countries are pumping out the resources, and Iran is not in a position to be able to do the same because it doesn't have the technology to really exploit these resources. So I think Rouhani and Zangane and others are making um, a, a very potent argument that, OK, Iran has an opportunity now to actually benefit from this deal and to get back to where it was and even grow from, from that point of view. But they're going to have to obey some international rules of the road, and there just is no other way around it. So I think we still have extraordinary leverage through the FATF, through the remaining US sanctions, to encourage Iran to get its house in order, particularly its financial house in order. Uh, and, and this will be uh, an enormous benefit going down. Now, you mentioned the domestic situation, political situation. Uh, it, we're not the only ones with elections. Iran has presidential elections. 
coming up um, next May, June. May. May. Uh, and Rouhani will run again. Um, I think it's a reasonable expectation that he will win. Uh, so far, the more hardline elements have not been able to come up with a credible candidate to run against him. Uh, Ahmadinejad, the former president, has made noises about, uh, about a political comeback, but uh, he caused so much chaos when he was president before uh, that it's even questionable whether he would be allowed to run by the Guardian Council, which is the organization that vets various candidates for political uh, uh, elected office in Iran. We have Kalibov, the mayor of Tehran, but he's now embroiled in a new scandal over housing and, uh, and various uh, uh, kickbacks and so on. Uh, the others in the field have run before. They're all has-beens. They look really weak. Rouhani is a unique sort of individual. He is not a moderate. He's a pragmatist, and he's a survivor of the system. He's a pillar of the system who's been there from the very beginning. Um, I mean, he was even involved in, in Iran-Contra. I was at an event recently um, where Bud McFarlane, a former US official, talked about his conversations with Rouhani during the, the Contra, Iran-Contra crisis and about how even then Rouhani was talking about Iran getting back to a proper role in the international community and that we just had to be patient that all revolutions had to run their course. It was fascinating. So I have a lot of faith in his, uh, in his abilities. I look at the people he's put into government, particularly people like Javad Zarif, very, very capable Iranian foreign minister. You know, and I think these guys have arguments that they can use internally to say, look, do you want to stay a third-rate country forever? Do you want to get to where uh, Iran should be? You know, Iran could have been like South Korea, could have been like, uh, could have been like Taiwan, could have been like Turkey before the recent problems there. You know, or do you, you know, if you want to get to that status, then we have to play by certain rules of the road. So it's going to be a fascinating argument to watch. I expect more, more incidents. Uh, I expect more Iranian Revolutionary Guard boats menacing US naval uh, ships in the Persian Gulf. Unfortunately, I expect uh, Iranian Americans and other dual nationals, many of them, to remain in prison, which is horrific. And may I have a, a shout out to Siamak Namazi and his father, Bakr Namazi, who remain in prison, which is ridiculous, and uh, so many others. Um, this is the way, this is, this is the way the IRGC fights back, as we know, uh, to try to make Iran continue to look like a pariah state and thereby uh, strengthen their ability to, to remain in control of key elements of the, of the system and of the economy. Uh, but, but I'll put my money on Rouhani in the long term. Um, you know, the arguments that you, that you mentioned that Rouhani and Zarif, um, you know, will make in the run-up to the election, they've, they've been making for a year or two, <coughs> almost three years now. Um, how would you say the Supreme Leader views those arguments and, and what is, because at the end of the day, even mm -hmm. when there, if there's an election, even if Rouhani wins, the Supreme Leader is still in charge and ultimately um, oversees the IRGC and their actions. They don't operate, you know, mm -hmm. in a rogue manner. Um, how do, you, how do you see his thinking either evolving or not evolving on these questions of Iran truly opening up to the West and to Western business? Well, you know better than me, Yagane, that he has a balancing act that he has to perform. He needs the IRGC. He needs them for uh, Iran's external military operations in places like Syria and Yemen and Iraq. Um, so he has to make sure that they are taken care of uh, one way or another. Um, but I think he also understands the arguments that are being made. Uh, he has legacy issues to consider. He is not in the best of health, we keep hearing. Uh, he will not be there forever. 
Uh, and he understands that ordinary Iranians are still very, very frustrated and angry that they have not seen tangible benefits uh, from the JCPOA. There's still a lot of unemployment. Inflation has come down, but uh, still a lot of unemployment and, uh, and discontent within the system. So he will, he will play his balancing act. Um, but I think, uh, I think the strong arguments really will be on the side of, uh, of Rouhani and company. And, and may I also just say that the United States actually can do more to improve the environment. It can, it can approve the Boeing deal. OFAC is sitting on the Boeing deal and the Airbus deal. If these planes go through, Iranians will be able to fly without having to worry that the plane is going to fall out of the sky. That would be a really potent goodwill gesture. Uh, the U.S. could allow multilational lending to Iran for environmental purposes. We had an event here at the Council a couple of days ago on the environmental challenges that are facing Iran, which are extreme. Because Iran's on the so-called terrorist list, uh, the global environment facility, the World Bank, can't lend to Iran for the environment. Uh, this is, this, if this were to somehow change, I think that would also be a potent signal to the Iranians that uh, it's not about the Iranian people. You know, We want them to succeed. And, uh, and, uh, and we're not uh, looking to continue to punish them for actions that they have no control over. Uh, Chris, can I ask you to respond to that? Um, are there more Why ways? That? <laughs> <laughs> um, are there more ways that the U.S. could um, engage with ordinary Iranians? Um, you know the points that Barbara made up, um, uh, that Barbara uh, mentioned, but also, um, are there more people-to-people -people exchanges that can take place? Are there? Is there just greater engagement that could happen, sort of at the popular level, um, that would advance U.S. interests? Good question. First, I'm really glad Barbara's on the panel. I always really benefit from her political analysis on Iran, uh, and it's really helpful. Um, you know, there, there are limits to what the U.S. government can do. Um, but I think, you know, Barbara makes the right point, that there are, there are opportunities for Iran to re-engage in their international community that go beyond the JCPOA. They, they could lie in other areas. Um, as a U.S. government, though, we do have to be really careful um, about what we say and what we do with respect to the politics of other countries. Um, and the last thing we want to do is be seen as pushing in one direction or another or trying to accomplish one particular political outcome for another. Um, you know, I've always been of the view that you really have to let the Iranians or any other country manage their own politics. That's part of this uh, debate that we see with, the, with comments by the Supreme Leader. They know their politics much better than we do. Um, I say the same thing when the Iranians or Europeans will come to me and say, oh my gosh, what did your Congress say? And I say, let us manage our own, our own politics and, you, and worry about yours, and we'll let you know if, if there's a, a problem on the horizon. Um, so to a certain degree, we do try to take a bit of a, of a hands-off approach to trying to you know, empower or do things like that, because you can get, uh, you can get yourself wrapped up into to, uh, things that you may not intend. And, and outcomes may be exactly the opposite. I mean, there's a limit to what uh, U.S. government support, how much benefit that could actually do to any particular, um, uh, uh, any particular cause in Iran. So, um, so we, as the government, have to take a different role. That doesn't mean that, that there aren't opportunities that will surface uh, over time where we look at an opportunity and we see it in the U.S. interests to, to, to follow through. It doesn't mean that there won't be those sorts of things that come, that come up. Um, on the, on the uh, aircraft deals that, that Barbara mentions, I'm not at liberty to talk about specific companies, uh, and I wouldn't want to uh, speak for OFAC either. But what I can say is that as part of the JCPOA, we committed to allow for 
the export of commercial passenger aircraft to Iran, and we're going to follow through on that. Um, that is, uh, it is a little complicated because for those of you that don't know, aircraft themselves have a lot of very highly technical and highly controlled internationally potentially dual internationally use controlled parts. dual use components and parts. And so, this isn't the only place where we sell aircraft. There are a variety of sort of uh, very careful reviews about it, what exactly the plane, who's it going to, where's it going to be. Uh, and so when you haven't had this sort of engagement in over 30 years, it's not surprising to see that, that it takes a little while to, to go through all that, uh, all that process. Again, not speaking any particular company in this particular instance, but uh, as a general matter. Um, so, uh, so I think Barbara's right about everything. I think there, is, there, is, there are limits, though, where, where the U.S. government can play. Um, can I ask you, this is uh, beyond the JCPOA, but um, we did have the, the prisoner exchange uh, at, you know, on the, on the day of implementation. Since then, right before and then since then, there have been uh, more arrests. Uh, Siam Aknamazi, who's known to many people in this room, his father, and then a third uh, U.S. citizen, as well as a number of European uh, and Canadian dual nationals. Um, this, in addition to the effect that it has on them and their families, also affects the business climate, especially CLMAC's arrest, because he was um, not at the time of his arrest, but had a, had a history of being um, very involved with uh, Iranian and um, Western uh, business interests. Um, and it, it, it would seem to depress uh, Iranian dual nationals' interest in, in going to work in Iran. Can you speak a little bit about kind of how the U.S. government views these arrests, what uh, efforts, if any, you can talk about to, to get them released? Uh, I'm happy to. Um, this is this is a complicated area. Uh, in particular, there are a variety of privacy concerns with respect to individuals that the government, that the U.S. government, is restricted. What I can say about you know any individual case. So let me, in the same way that I just did on on the airline issue, speak a little bit more generally, which is the fact that um, we continue to call on Iran to. Uh, uh, respect the rights of its citizens and certainly to respect the rights of American citizens that are in Iran. Uh, and we continue to call on them to uh, not to harass and to release any uh, U.S. Uh, nationals that, that have been wrongly detained. Uh, that is something that is a core part of our policy toward Iran. It is something that we was one of our top priorities uh, as we were leading up to implementation day was to uh, secure the release of those citizens that were wrongfully detained at that time. Uh, I would love to tell you that that will never happen again, but it but it will. And uh, there are going to be in any uh, in any country there are constantly these sorts of things that you have to manage. They're particularly acute in Iran, and it's one where uh, we continue to press the Iranians uh, for their um, uh, to release those uh, to, to release those Americans and let them come back uh, come back home. I can't speak to really any of the specific cases here in the, in the public sector. Understand. Sure. Um, and I will, will, of course, make time for your, your questions, so get them ready. Um, David, I just had a follow-up for you um, on a slightly uh, lighter topic, which is the U.S. <laughs> election. Um, how do um, private businesses, international businesses, see um, the, the two candidates' uh, positions and public statements towards Iran? Um, the foreign policy advisor to Hillary Clinton, um, Jake Sullivan, has said that um, you know, one thing that uh, could be done um, under a Clinton administration is to increase the costs um, uh, to Iran of engaging in its confrontational actions, particularly the ballistic missiles test, missile, missile tests and other actions. Um, you know, how do, how do people see the prospect of either a Clinton or Trump administration when it comes to implementation of the JCPOA? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think that 
the election um, is providing uncertainty, and uncertainty makes private companies wary um, of embarking on any new opportunity that requires um, effort and cost and time up front. Uh, and so I think um, certainly there are a lot of uh, companies in the private sector taking a wait and see approach. Um, if, you know, it's, uh, I, it, it's a little difficult to speculate where the, where the new administrations would come out on the deal, um, or given the, given the, well, I should say this, um, the Clinton campaign has obviously been very clear on where they would, uh, where the administration would come out on the deal, that it supports the deal, it wants to see it succeed. Uh, my personal view is that um, the Clinton administration is going to need to put in just as much capital and effort uh, and commitment as this administration in order to, from the private sector perspective, uh, see the deal continue to um, give comfort to companies of what they can do and where the red lines are. Um, so I think um, wanting to support the deal is one thing, showing the same level of commitment that this administration has to make it work is another. Uh, and so I think even with a Clinton administration, there is, um, there is a question mark whether that is going to be the case. And you know, the reality is that's something that's going to have to be seen when uh, the administration uh, gets into office and has a million different priorities facing them um, and, and where they put their time and effort. Um, for a, a Trump administration, um, again, let's just say um, uncertainty uh, makes companies wary. And maybe I'll, I'll leave it there. Sure. <laughs> um, although he has said, I, I thought I saw an interview with him, I think, in the New York Times where he expressed surprise that US companies were not allowed. So to yeah, <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, so, yeah, that is, that is correct. So he has said uh, it's a terrible deal um, and we shouldn't have given Iran the money. Um, you know, it's unclear whether, I mean, he said we shouldn't have given them the money wherever he said it's our money, their money. Um, but at the same time, he says it's completely unfair that uh, US companies uh, can't go into Iran. Uh, he's also said that the FCPA is a, is a uh, terrible uh, law. This is the Foreign Corrupt Practice, foreign corrupt practice Act, which, you know, frankly, is, a, is another challenge for, um, for U.S. companies going into Iran. And um, as far as U.S. companies, and even some international companies that have any That are listed, that's US, right, that's right. Um, from bribing foreign officials. That's right, so, so absolutely. So the FCPA has been around since 1977, um, and as, as you said, is, is essentially a, a, an anti-foreign bribery statute that the U.S. and U.S. listed companies uh, are prohibited from, from engaging in, in bribery for a business advantage overseas. Um, uh, you know, obviously there is, there is a level of corruption in Iran that means you've got to be very careful about your FCPA compliance. This is just another issue of compliance when, when entering the market. Um, you know, Donald Trump says it's a terrible law, so would he do away with that? Would he allow U.S. companies to go into Iran? Um, that would obviously um, be going in a, in a completely different direction. So, um, you know, I, 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 would fi I find it hard to predict exactly Trump what- Trump Hotel in Tehran, you know, I can see exactly, it now. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I think it's, you know, and then of course, um, you know, one would have to assume if we have a, a President Trump, there's a good chance we have a Republican 
House and Senate, how would they feel about those changes? Um, I think they'd probably feel differently. Um, so, uh, you know, ag again, it's it's very difficult to predict, and frankly, that uncertainty is is what is make, making companies hesitate just a little. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if uh, um, if Clinton wins in in November, um, I think we'll see a sort of surge of comfort and um, a second look at Iran at the, at the companies that aren't already looking. Um, I think if Trump wins. Um, there'll be a, a sort of long period of holding our breath to see uh, what exactly is going to happen. Sure. Can I ask you and, and potentially Chris as well to maybe answer a deeper question about um, U.S. sanctions implementation and the rolling back of it? Um, we've had OFAC officials say, and, and there's no reason to not believe them, that they are working flat out in terms of trying to give guidance, issue licenses, answer questions, traveling all over the world to meet with executives and banks and everyone they can to clearly explain what's going on. Um, they're working with a staff of you know, less than 200 people you know, across all these divisions, including the actual people who decide who to, who to sanction. Um, their budget has not really kept up with the pace of you know, new executive orders, new uh, legislation, um, legislating sanctions, um, all the additional work that they have to do. Um, do you think that there's potential and is there a need for uh, the next administration to consider requesting you know, more funding for OFAC or you know, for other sanctions implementation agencies or bodies that have to do? I think the State Department's sanctions body has increased a bit, um, if I'm not mistaken. But what, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? You, you're both familiar with the interagency process. Yeah. Um, I mean, absolutely. I mean, this is a, this is a huge issue, right? I mean, OFAC um, is a very small uh, office um, bureau um, within the U.S. government that has an inordinate amount of work, uh, both internally in order to impose sanctions, in order to implement them, and then also externally in not only bringing enforcement actions, uh, but helping the vast majority of companies that simply want to be in compliance to know where the, where the lines are. Um, and it's an incredible amount of work for 200 people. Mm. Um, and frankly, I think um, you know, one, of the, one of the greatest fixes could be, it should be uh, to increase the resources um, and uh, bodies for, uh, for OFAC, particularly on uh, the compliance side, the licensing side. Um, you know, you have 200 people, and uh, if they're spending most of their day responding to inquiries from Congress, that does not leave a lot of time uh, to actually implement the sanctions themselves. Um, the I think there's a there's a broader issue though that has has made this sort of level of resources unsustainable is um, the fact that sanctions have changed dramatically over the last ten years, right? I mean, you have had not only have you just had increase in volume. I mean, this president has issued more executive orders on sanctions than all his predecessors combined. I think by the time I left the White House in in December, I think it was 33. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, you know, there's there's obviously an increase in volume, but there's also, a, a change in the way that the U.S. government implements sanctions, Much right? More complex. Exactly, exactly. Ten years ago, it was you know the, the sort of the real um, revolution that Stuart Levy um, headed was to create um, just make individuals, entities, countries toxic, 
and to get banks out, to get banks to stay away, create these very large gray areas where simply if you had to ask the question, then the answer was no. Uh, you know, if even you thought it might be a problem with OFAC, you should stay away. And arguably that overhang is maybe what's preventing some of the business and going back to Iran because until a year and a half ago, the answer was just no, basically. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And I think, you know, this started in, I mean, it even started a couple of years ago, right? It started with Burma, with the way we lifted sanctions in a way that was fairly complex, right? We wanted companies to go in, but we wanted them to avoid SDNs. We wanted them to file uh, uh, public reports if they were making investments above a certain threshold. And then with Russia, certainly the revolution was complete, right? To sanctions, you know, 3.0 or whatever you want to call it, of, you know, drawing these very intricate lines where we, the way we expected the sanctions to operate, because that's the way we wanted them to work, was that companies would go right up to the line, but not cross it. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously with, with the JCPOA, it's just a, a, a really uh, new level of intricacy of uh, really drawing that line in a way that pushes U.S. policy interests. And, you know, frankly, um, I mean, the bottom line is it's better, right? I mean, the ability to use sanctions in a way that more precisely pushes U.S. policy in the direction the government wants it to go is great, right? The fact that this tool is now much more useful, much more subtle, uh, that is a huge uh, benefit to U.S. foreign policy. Um, but the sort of the level of implementation has to match that. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, OFAC, you know, honestly, uh, some of the absolute most dedicated, intelligent, committed, uh, um, you know, people in the U.S. government. But there's only so many of them, and there's only so many hours of the day, and there are, you know, a lot of questions. Um, and so I think, uh, I think as we move in this direction of sanctions, where it becomes much more complex, much more uh, subtle. Um, you know, that, uh, those resources are going to have to keep up. Sure. Chris, uh, you were at NSC, you're now at State. Do you feel this sort of squeeze of resources when it comes to sanctions implementation? Well, I think suffice it to say there's always a squeeze of resources in the U.S. government. I think uh, a lot of our policy areas could, could use more. Um, I won't speak to OFAC situation. You know, we've tried to put uh, as much as we can behind implementation of the JCPOA. We do have a a new office uh, dedicated to that, Office of, of Iran Nuclear Implementation, uh, led by, by Ambassador Steve Moll. And we've got a pretty robust uh, group in our, in our Bureau of Economic Affairs working on, on sanctions relief issues as well. But to be clear, our, the burden on us is much lower than it is on OFAC, and, and I'll just repeat what David said, which is that um, there are a lot of incredibly committed individuals over there working as hard as they can, working really long hours. Um, to try to make all of this work, but there is a, a, a certainly a very intense volume of, of issues for them to deal with. Sure. Um, Barbara, did you have any any comments on that, or I can also turn to questions? I think we can go to the questions, right. yeah. All right, so um, Ambassador Morningstar, um, and get your questions ready. I think the presentations have really been extraordinary, and, uh, and thank you for that. Uh, as I listen, and given that I'm old and have spent my life being in business, being a lawyer, being a policymaker, I think that there is a disconnect maybe between policymakers and even lawyers and companies. And when uh, listening to the presentations, 
I was saying to myself, you know, this is sort of like a pharmaceutical ad on television. You know, there are great benefits by investing in Iran, but you can die a hundred ways, uh, you know, if you do it. And, uh, and, and, I, and I don't think it's enough to say, well, the risks are manageable, at least not enough for a company. I mean, putting my company hat back on, I would say, you know, yeah, I understand it can't be risk-free, but I at least want to feel confident that if I make the investment uh, and that, you know, it's a good project, that, you know, we'll see the benefits of the project. So I guess the question I would ask, and you've already answered it to some extent, to, I think, to the best you can, uh, how do you instill that confidence? And maybe I see there, there are companies here. What would it take for a company to get beyond the manageable point, uh, but to the point, well, gee, you know, we feel really confident that maybe we can do something? David, you seem to <laughs> Sure. Um, I mean, I think, you know, look, manageable is, is the starting point. Um, but obviously, um, the, the approach is, it varies wildly based on um, the type of business, right? Are you um, obviously providing, um, you know, exporting goods to Iran is, is the most simple enterprise here in terms of screening your customers. What are the items? Where are they coming from? Um, you know, do they comply with sanctions? Do they comply with export controls? That's, you can answer those questions fairly simply. You know, you obviously get more complex when you're talking about financial services and the relationships that have to be established in order to be able to do that. Um, when you're getting to the point where you're talking about investment, um, who's involved, who's on the other side, what happens in the, if the investment goes through uh, and you're actually operating in Iran, how do you screen the third parties that you're working with? Um, every, every company's situation is, is different. Um, and I mean, I say I say manageable, um, but note I did not adopt um, Secretary Kerry's word that it's it's simple, uh, right? So, you know, uh, some of these projects take you know a couple of weeks to figure out and put policies and procedures in place. Some of these take months and months. Uh, some of them, you know, uh, we're looking at sort of years down the road for for these things to actually um, come to fruition. Um, but, you know, I mean, honestly, I think if, if companies scratch below the surface a little, right, um, uh, if, you, if you get away from simply citing the big enforcement actions uh, and look at why those were imposed, um, and if you get away from that and actually look at what you as a company need to do, given your business, given the, the entities and individuals that you will be coming into contact with Iran, you know, that's what's going to make that's what's going to make companies comfortable. I think a lot of executives in boardrooms here are on, and that's the end of the conversation uh, because they're thinking about these these bigger picture issues. But um, if you actually look at if co once companies look at what they need to do, the procedures that they need to put in place for their business, life becomes much more practical, um, and you know you're really talking about um, the the same types of activities that that and same types of risks that you're confronting in many other types of the world as well. Barbara? Yeah, I mean, Iran has a huge, well-educated market, 80 million people. There aren't very many un, 
untouched markets like this in the world. So I think that's tremendously attractive for, for a lot of companies. There are uh, sectors, pharmaceuticals, agricultural products that have been going to Iran throughout this period. There were some hitches here and there, but they've all worked out uh, financing arrangements and they seem, seem satisfied uh, with those. So, I mean, we're, we're, we are looking at the more difficult and controversial areas like uh, foreign direct investment. But again, if Iran wants this investment, it knows what it has to do to wall off the IRGC to, to set up the appropriate compliance uh, procedures. And they have really learned this now, uh, I think, over the last year in a way that, that wasn't clear to a lot of people in the Iranian government and in Iranian business sectors before. So that in itself, I think, is a real benefit. Chris, you were going to say something? I was going to say that exact thing. That, uh, there you go. I should be in the U.S. <laughs> government. But no, it's <laughs> One other thing, if I may, too, and that is I was at a conference in Zurich uh, a few months back, and I met all these amazing Iranian women entrepreneurs. And I always say, if you want to make sure that you're not dealing with the IRGC, just do a deal with an Iranian woman <laughs> entrepreneur. Uh, they have high-tech companies, they, they import commercial goods, they are amazing, so educated, so talented, uh, and, uh, and you can avoid a lot of problems. So. <laughs> All right, um, so other questions. So, um, yes, Ms. Sadiri, and then we'll, maybe we'll take a few at once. I'm Shala Sadigi from Voice of America, Persian TV. My question is to Mr. Beckmayer um, regarding the sanctions. Although uh, the State Department and the White House says they have mechanism of the mechanism of the sanctions at their disposal, if Iran violates the uh, JCPOA, uh, they can enforce those. But um, the present um, sanction act in the Congress, which is due to um, run out at the end of this year. It only kicks in if the Iran violates the. Uh, JCPOA. So why is the White House reluctant to give a go-ahead to its uh, party colleagues, uh, Democrats in the Congress, to renew these sanctions? And if I may ask a question from Barbara, um, aren't you a bit too optimistic about the uh, IRGC grip on the power? Why do you think that they listen to old um, uh, Ayatollah Khamenei? Actually, yeah, let's just take those two. So, um, Chris, you want to go first? Sure. Um, we are, you know, there, there are a variety of bills uh, out there with respect to Iran-related le legislation. Uh, we are, we look at all of them very closely and we monitor the situation. Uh, in the spirit of kind of the, the comment I made earlier about the, the politics of everything, every bill that, that you see does not necessarily reflect what is going to be a final piece of legislation and so I'll reserve our comments on any specific bill until we have you know pieces of legislation for uh, for the administration to consider what we've said though is that and what the president has said is that he'll veto any legislation that would uh, prevent us from implementing uh, the JCPOA so that means bills that would you know make it difficult or make it impossible or require us to reimpose the uh, the sanctions that were in the JCPOA uh, for you know for for um, reasons that may be, be outside of the scope of the JCPOA. We've been clear about that, and, there, and, and he's said that a number of times. On the Iran Sanctions Act, um, there is, a, I think, sometimes some misunderstanding about the, the degree of uh, importance it plays in the broader thing. There are multiple pieces of legislation that were waived as part of the, uh, as part of the um, 
uh, JCPOA. That's uh, significant portions of that act were uh, waived as part of that. And so um, I know there's been some discussion about whether or not to renew. And I think when we see uh, an actual bill, uh, we'll consider our, our position on that. Mm -hmm. Barbara, did you want yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm not, wouldn't say I'm optimistic <clears throat> about, uh, uh, about controlling the RGC, except in the sense that, that I think Rouhani has a very coherent argument to make to wall off their activities from the rest of the economy and certainly important parts of the economy where Iran needs foreign investment. And that's the argument that he's making with the Supreme Leader. Now, I think the Supreme Leader can tell the IRGC what to do. I don't think the IRGC tells the Supreme Leader what to do. At least that's not been my impression so far. So this is an argument they're going to have to sort out. Uh, it's, a, it's a major debate uh, in Iran. You know, how successful a country do they want to be? How do they define success? Is success just the regime hanging on with uh, uh, an impoverished people? Or is it a growing economy, a flourishing economy that's more interconnected with the rest of the world? So, uh, you know, I would like to hope that the latter will be the case, but obviously there are no guarantees. I will note, I mean, there are no experts on Iran, only students of Iran. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, it seems like in, the, in their history and going back to even what Khomeini said at the, before the revolution, economic development has not really been their focus. It's more been kind of the ideological underpinnings of the, of the government. Um, I don't know if you want to It has been. It has been. But Iran has gone through enormous changes over the last uh, 37 years. Every time I go there, I'm amazed by... Uh, the quality of the people, the level of education, the level of sophistication, and uh, any government has to be somehow sensitive to the nature of the society, uh, cannot completely ignore uh, the wishes and desires of, it, of its people, uh, however authoritarian that regime may be. So I, I continue to think, uh, especially as I look at the next generation of, of, of people coming in, um, that uh, you know, there will be these changes over time. It may not be as fast as a lot of Iranians would like. It may not be as fast as we would like. Uh, but I think it's inevitable. If I might ask, uh, add that Secretary Clinton um, supported the Renewal of the Sanction Act last April. So if she comes to White House, um, do you oppose that? It would be a different administration. If, 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 if. <laughs> Either president is, I'm a career State Department official, and whoever gets elected, I will do exactly what they tell me to do. <laughs> Good answer. All right. Um, yes, sir. Uh, Doug Hengel, former State Department official who, in a previous life, worked very closely with these two gentlemen on, uh, on Iran sanctions. So, um, pleasure to see you both here. That's a very uh, kind way of putting it, by the way. Both of us work for Doug. <laughs> for him, so. David, a question, I guess, for you. Um, in addition to the remaining U.S. sanctions on Iran. There's also many U.S. states have sanctions of one kind or another on Iran. How much of a challenge is this to a company looking to do business there? So um, I can tell you that uh, it, <laughs> in terms of um, examining the risks, it's something we've certainly worked with companies to look at. I have some very large binders of state measures. Uh, there are 37 states, by my count, with uh, their own uh, measures uh, for imposing sanctions on, on companies doing certain activities in Iran. Um, however, um, in terms of a risk, um, it's, it's, I would say it's not something that has stood in the way 
uh, of any company that I've talked to um, beyond the federal sanctions um, and anti-corruption, anti-money laundering uh, compliance that, that any company um, should have in place anyway. Um, you know, it's, it's, there are some fairly broad authorities granted to um, state officials to Im impose sanctions on companies, especially doing uh, business in um, Iran's energy sector. Um, but if you look at how uh, if you look at how states have actually deployed those sanctions, they've tended to be against uh, companies who were engaged in activities that arguably triggered federal measures anyway, um, even if the lists have not matched up exactly uh, between companies sanctioned by the, the U.S. government and sanctions, uh, companies sanctioned by the states. Um, you know, I think... My personal view is that there's a real risk if um, there's a real risk from states if they intend do intend to derail the uh, um, the the deal. Um, but you know, I think um, that's something I'm assuming. Uh, you know, Chris and other uh, U.S. government colleagues have worked with states very closely to ensure that uh, the measures are as, as close as possible. Um, so to give you a much shorter answer, I would say it is something companies need to be aware of and look at, uh, particularly if they're publicly listed companies with investment, uh, with uh, you know, pension funds and, and state uh, employee funds invested in them. Um, but I, I have not seen them become um, the, 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 you know, the one obstacle um, to activity in Iran um, that, that they could be. I did a story on the state sanctions. Right, sorry, we'll go back, right back to you. Yeah. I did a story on the state sanctions last year, and there was a company um, that sells medical equipment to Iran under the humanitarian uh, license. And I, they didn't know until I told them that they had been um, uh, boycotted by the Michigan State Pension Fund. Um, so yeah. I don't know if that, it's just an anecdote, but it may show the real impact on their bottom line. Maybe it's not that much. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a good point. I mean, it is worth noting that we use this term imposed sanctions pretty generally. And when you get sanctions imposed by the federal government, that can mean that you cannot have any contact with a U.S. person in financial sense. Uh, when we're talking about these sanctions at the state level, what it, in most cases what it means is that the state pension fund will just not be allowed to invest in you. It doesn't mean that you won't be able to live in Idaho or you won't be able to open a bank account in Idaho or you know, uh, engage with companies in Texas or whatever. I mean, so there's a really big difference in what these states have, have tried to do. These are, this is, in general, uh, divestment legislation or le legislation that, that doesn't allow for the procurement of goods from that particular company. So maybe the you know, elementary school can't buy products from, from, from this company. But I think it speaks to the degree to which it, it is a bottom line question. The penalties are, are far below what, um, what we often talk about when we say imposing sanctions. Yeah, Chris makes a really great point, and in fact, in many cases, it's even more attenuated than that, right? I mean, the actual sanction may be uh, that state funds cannot invest directly into a, quote, sanctioned company, but nonetheless, they can still invest into a mutual fund that is invested in that company, which is frankly mostly what they do uh, anyway. So, you know, I think there's, there's reputational risk that you'll get added to some list somewhere on, on some state website. Um, uh, 
although that's been happening less recently since the deal. Um, but in terms of impact on bottom line, it's, uh, you know, it, it, the, the risk is low. Let's put it that way. All right. Uh, yes, sir, here. Hello, my name is Ed Martin from Eastern Mennonite University. My question isn't so much about commerce, but it's certainly about relations with between Iran and the U.S. And I'd ask Chris, you know, for the last uh, <clears throat> about 20 years, I've been traveling to Iran and been involved in several education exchange programs. And when I go, my visa has to be approved by the foreign ministry in Tehran, but it can be issued by the interest section here in Washington. The Iranians that I've helped to bring to the U.S. have to go out of Iran to Dubai or Ankara or Yerevan to apply for their visa and then go back there to actually get it. Is there any thinking about having some sort of interest section in Tehran that can actually issue the visas that would be approved by the State Department? That's a great question. Uh, we, you know, get a lot of questions about. You know, actually, it's interesting. We have a. Um, uh, you know, we have a, a website which we call, um, which is, is fields a lot of questions like this on our Iran policy at the State Department. And it, the top issue, the top question we get is always about visas to the United States. That's what people are far, by far the most interested in. And you're right that we do not issue, we do not have a U.S. presence of any kind in Iran. Uh, you know, the, the government of Switzerland serves our protecting power, and, and in cases where there are detentions of American citizens, uh, they seek to get consular access for those purposes. Uh, but there is not a function for, for supplying visas, which does require Iranians to, to leave the country. Um, you know, it, that's not something that we're considering changing for now. Uh, the JCPOA is, is uh, like I said, it was a big step on the nuclear front, uh, but it didn't, didn't resolve a lot of our other concerns. And really, you know, to get to that point, you'd need to, um, there, are, there are a lot of things that you would need to resolve, both on a policy, but just also logistical level to kind of get to that, uh, get to that level. It's not to say that, that, that no government would ever uh, uh, consider it, but I don't know that it's something you should expect uh, in the next uh, next few months. Chris, could I just follow up on his question? Is this, I mean, is it because the Iranians have told us they don't want us to even ask for it? No, I'm sorry. That implies that this is an ongoing conversation about this particular issue. What we're, what I, what, the way I think I would best describe it is that we have a lot of issues with Iran that we're focused on dealing with uh, that, uh, you know, include uh, dealing or trying to, uh, uh, including, you know, countering their activities with respect to support for Assad in Syria, their support for the Houthis in Yemen, support for terrorism. There are a lot of issues that, that are on the docket, mm -hmm. um, and I think that there uh, will need to be. Um, uh, so that suggests that uh, that there are a lot of issues we need to deal with before we get to to that point. It doesn't mean that you have to solve every every problem before you get there. I just wouldn't want to speak to a particular time frame or or any sort of agenda on that front. Okay. All right. Any other questions? Uh, yes, sir, here. Hi, my name is uh, Jack Rapansky, uh, unaffiliated. Uh, my question is about Russia. Does Iran provide kind of a backdoor for Russia to avoid sanctions, direct sanctions, where U.S. companies could deal with Iranian companies who deal with other Iranian companies that then deal with the Russians? <laughs> well, I mean, just as a, I, I'm not so familiar with the, the Russia sanctions. My colleague here is. Uh, but it's what I can say is that you know for the most part U.S. companies are still prohibited from dealing with Iran because of the, the sanctions that remain in place. That the sanctions we lived in the JCPOA were those that applied largely to non-U.S. firms. So to the core of your question, whether a U.S. company could use that as a as a as a channel, 
Uh, I don't suspect so, but, but David might have a better Yeah, I mean, if I were advising a company on how to evade sanctions, which I would not, <laughs> uh, uh, that would be the very last way I would suggest they do it, uh, because of the, the, uh, the sanctions on Iran, uh, for a US person at least, are more comprehensive than what we have in place on Russia. Um, so in terms of a backdoor, it would be a, a very, very inefficient and ineffective way um, to, to evade sanctions on Russia. But a backdoor for Russia to evade? Well, a backdoor from Russia to evade, I mean, I, you know, I don't think it's so much about evading sanctions, uh, right? I mean, the United States, Europe, Canada, Australia, Japan, you know, there's a, there's a large international coalition with, with sanctions on Russia um, for uh, its activity in Ukraine, um, but not the entire world, uh, right? And so obviously um, there are business opportunities elsewhere in the world and, and, and countries they, they do business that have not imposed sanctions, um, including, uh, including Iran. Um, so, you know, inevitably there are going to be Russians looking for um, activities, uh, business opportunities in Iran. But, but as we said earlier, uh, we talked earlier about the, the sort of intricacy and, and, you know, the more nuance of the Russia and Iran sanctions compared to old regimes. You know, the Russia sanctions are, are built on not just designating individuals and entities, but access to financing. Um, you know, major Russian financial institutions uh, are not looking for finance, financing and oil and gas field services in Iran. They're looking to Europe. They're looking to the United States. And that's why the Russian sanctions were designed that way. Other questions, particularly from women. Um, yes, please, here. Hi, it's Emily Meredith from Energy Intelligence. And I was, Chris, you said that there's a lot of misunderstanding about um, the Iran Sanctions Act and its criticality for the JCPOA. Could you speak to what tools then are more critical? Can you help us you know, understand a little bit better? Sure. Um, I, and, and I hope I didn't, I didn't mean to suggest that, that I feel like any one piece of legislation is more important than the other. My, my comment was really intended to say that uh, there are some that believe that the Iran Sanctions Act contains all of the sanctions that have ever been on Iran and that, you know, and that th those are the ones left in the JCPOA. It's a subset. There are, you know, three, four, five different pieces of legislation and, and just as many executive orders that have created kind of a framework of, of sanctions on Iran. Um, and there's a certain amount of overlap between, uh, between all of those. So, um, so my point in, in, in saying that was kind of correcting that, that misunderstanding that, that this is the, the big piece. What we've said, you know, we've been questioned about, um, uh, about the, the role of that particular bill. We have, we have very strong sanctions authorities across the board if we were wanting to reimpose sanctions for any reason. Uh, and so we, and, and that's, that's intentional. Part of the, re the way we crafted this entire deal is to make sure that we had that, uh, that ability. So not to speak to, to any of the specifics in that particular act, I just didn't want to prioritize it over, over others which have equally um, uh, broad measures. Um, did you have a follow-up? Oh, uh, are you saying that if that goes away, then, there, then sort of the infrastructure is still There's there? There's SADA as well, right? Right. So, most of our, many of our sanctions uh, that have been imposed on Iran and any other country have been imposed via executive order under the International Economic uh, Emergency Economic Powers Act. 
Uh, and so any, I mean, to be honest, almost any piece of legislation that makes up sanctions could in theory be replicated through an executive order if you needed to. That's the, that's the overarching point we've been making is that there are those, there are those authorities that exist. All right, and we have time for maybe one last question. May I talk about different topic with regards to recent uh, North Korea um, atomic uh, tests again? Does that, how much does it worry the State Department and White House about involvement of Iran with North Korea, which goes back, you know, they have had some cooperation with regards to China recent glitch in relationship? Uh, good question. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a North Korea expert, but obviously we condemn what what has occurred there and, and continue to have a lot of uh, and continue to have a lot of concern about the situation in North Korea. Um, with respect to the connection, you know, with, with how that influences our Iran policy, uh, all I can say is that the JCPOA was constructed to prevent Iran from being able to get enough fissile material to construct a nuclear weapon. Uh, and you contrast that to the North Korea situation, that's exactly what we're trying to prevent from happening. Uh, you know, Iran does not have uh, currently enough nuclear material for a weapon in the way that, that North Korea does. And the whole point of this process was to make sure that we uh, eliminated the means by which they could get that, uh, get that enriched uranium. Uh, and we did that through the JCPOA by removing 98% of its stockpile of, of enriched uranium by removing two-thirds of the centrifuges that had to enrich that uranium further to a weapon grade, by implementing uh, transparency measures that are really uh, uh, at the, at the you know, top end of what's ever been implemented in a, uh, in a non-proliferation regime. Uh, and as a result, we, we lengthened what was this breakout time, which is the amount of time not to get a weapon, but just to get enough material for a weapon uh, from 90 days to over a year. And so we are confident that through those range of restrictions that we got in the JCPOA, we prevented Iran from getting, uh, from having the ability to develop a nuclear weapon, which is exactly what you don't want to have uh, in the context of, a, of, a, of, of, of Iran or, or frankly many countries. And so that's, that's been our approach from the get-go. Now, as far as, you know, there are always allegations that there might be transfers and things like that. We've got a variety of means uh, at our disposal that, that these are risks that existed before and after the JCPOA, uh, and we've got a variety of both diplomatic, operational, and intelligence means that we use to disrupt shipments of illicit cargoes and sensitive technologies that make it even more difficult for Iran to get any sort of, of, of control technologies through other means. And so uh, we feel very comfortable that we have significantly reduced the risk that Iran would get uh, and, and eliminate the possibility of Iran obtaining a nuclear weapon in, in, in the future. That seems like a great place to end it. Um, I want to thank all of you for joining us. Thank you for your excellent questions. I want to thank our panelists, and I especially want to thank Chris Backemeyer. It's always really valuable to have the government perspective, so thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys very much. Thank you for listening to the Atlantic Council Events Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at atlanticcouncil.org and follow us on Twitter at Atlantic Council. The Atlantic Council working together to secure the future.